0: Support for Petri Dish Podcast comes from Pay It Forward. Clean and sober living, providing supportive sober living for previously homeless, newly recovering individuals, allowing them to achieve self-sufficiency and create meaningful, productive lives. More at payitforwardsa.org.
1: Hey, I'm all right. How are you doing? Good. Cool. A- Travis
2: Lux is a coastal reporter for WWNO, the NPR member station in New Orleans. He's chatting with folks in southwest Louisiana as they chop up fallen trees.
1: Uh, my name's Dylan Guidry. We're in Bell City, Louisiana. This is my brother's residence. I live in uh, Lake Arthur. People
2: who live in Lake Arthur and Bell City watched nervously over the past week as a tropical depression swelled into a Category 4 hurricane heading straight toward them.
1: Yeah, it got pretty nasty there, but it got worse here. They caught the outer band of the eye, which caught the 125 mile an hour winds. And we're cleaning up the debris debris from it, and it's pretty bad. Everything in Bell City's either knocked down or torn up, or. Roof's missing shingles and
2: it's bad. Lux tells us the state is grappling with two disasters at the same time. Remember, New Orleans saw an early spike
1: in COVID-19 after a packed Mardi Gras celebration. And so eventually things got under control in that region and cases started going back down. But then when places like Texas and Florida started surging, Louisiana actually had a second surge, one of these weird places where it had really two spikes in the curve. From Texas
2: Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, Hurricane Laura and COVID-19, when two disasters collide. On August 27th, Hurricane Laura crash-landed into the southwest Louisiana coast. The Category 4 storm produced 150 mile an hour winds, and it will go down in history as one of the strongest storms ever to hit the U.S. Its impact was devastating. Nearly 900,000 homes lost power, and as of August 30th, 16 people have been reported dead. This was the first major hurricane to strike the U.S. in 2020. It was also the first major hurricane to strike during the COVID-19 pandemic. A hurricane presents its own kind of health emergency But as the United States continues to grapple with this virus, a hurricane mixed into the COVID-19 pandemic creates a whole new swirl of challenges. And this event may be only the beginning. After all, a typical hurricane season doesn't end till November. Today, we'll explore what happened in Louisiana and Southeast Texas when the hurricane landed and what other hurricane hotspots like Florida, Alabama, and Mississippi and the eastern seaboard can learn from this awful storm. So let's go back to Louisiana. Reporter Travis Lux joined us from a hotel in Lafayette before he headed back to New Orleans.
1: Well, here in Lafayette, it wasn't so bad. You know, the only sign really that anything was amiss was the bayou that's right by the hotel was super swollen and flooded. But I got in my car in the morning and I started driving west toward where things were worse, where landfall occurred. There was residential flooding, there was flooding on um, sugarcane fields. And so eventually I made it to this town called Lake Arthur where I met up with um, a woman named Crystal Bro. Um, For her, she felt like she was lucky.
0: We have friends uh, down in Cameron and uh, Grand Lake and Lake Charles, my sister lives in Moss Bluff, and uh, they don't have uh, homes and they don't have jobs uh, because their uh, places of uh, occupation are completely gone.
1: After talking to Crystal, then I kept moving um, a little farther west and I I made it to this little town called Bell City, Louisiana, a tiny little town outside of Lake Charles, Louisiana. Um, People were out and about already just like with chainsaws. The sound of chainsaws was everywhere because everyone just had their own chainsaw. They were were slicing and dicing all the trees that were either falling on their houses or in the middle of the road. Um, So people were out working. But I... I ran into Dana Laverne in Bell City, and she's from a nearby town and was just staying with her son because she lives in a trailer. Um, You know, the thing about South Louisiana is this is a place that's like, not stranger to strong storms. But everyone I talked to that day, everyone, including Dana, just said like, they've never experienced anything like this before.
2: Frightening. Really, it was horrible. Really,
0: really horrible. Um, I've lived in this area my whole life, but um, I don't ever remember anything as intensive as that. I'm waiting on my son to get back um, so I can go and see. Uh, but my the my other son that was here
2: with me, um, he's already went out there and he said it was pretty bad. Um, our our property the. Um, where we were storing
0: our stuff it's the that sheds completely you know gone yeah. and the trailer we were staying in the uh, tree is on it so oh
1: my goodness, I'm sorry.
0: we're alive that's that's what matters.
1: Maybe it was because of of the hype and the fear that this was a Category 4, so people should leave. So a lot of people did end up leaving. Um, And of course, like the evacuation precautions were a lot different this year because of COVID.
2: Right. COVID. It's been about a half year since the pandemic came to the United States, and it's still raging. Unlike a hurricane, it doesn't weaken and fall apart once it reaches land. It keeps going and gets exponentially worse. New Orleans was an early hotspot and the state is now experiencing a second spike.
1: And this time, most of the activity, most of the virus was concentrated in other parts of the state, not New Orleans. So we're talking about like central Louisiana, north Louisiana, and especially southwest Louisiana, which is where Hurricane Laura eventually hit.
2: Meanwhile, in Texas, we're slowly flattening the curve. After entering a crisis in July, things are improving, but the state is still adding thousands of new cases every day. East Texas and Houston were spared from the brunt of the hurricane, but things could have been much worse. John Burnett, NPR's Southwest correspondent, spent the night of the hurricane in Beaumont, Texas. The next day, he went out to talk to people, and COVID-19 was not at the top of most people's minds.
0: The people I met were not wearing masks because I I just think in their head, it was like, this is is harder than coronavirus. I don't have time for the mask now. I, I almost got that sense from folks, and we were also, in a really red part of two states and of course president trump and a lot of republicans have been modeling how not to wear masks and you know i think that also contributes to it down down where i was at coastal petrochemical corridor
2: yeah. So, you know, I think the math of whether to evacuate or not or, or what to do is it's difficult enough without adding a pandemic. And so probably mask wearing would just get knocked down the list regardless. But but it sounds like politics are at play here, too.
0: Well, you know, that that's an intangible, Bonnie. But sure, it is. Sure, it is. When you have an entire party that's, you know, poo-pooing the the masks and, you know, some governors, et cetera. But I do think actually just the seriousness of a category four hurricane, that's all they were thinking about. Uh, that was that was, that was was like the only hazard they can handle uh, at the time.
2: So tell me about some of the people you talked to.
0: And I drove from my hotel in Beaumont, way down these intercoastal roads through these these mammoth refineries. And I found myself on a little road along the coast and the marshes of louisiana and the farther i drove the worse the damage got and then i got to gulf breeze beach and i met some rescuers who hadn't found anybody to rescue but they said hey there's a lady out there in one of those beach houses and she rode the storm out all by herself and i knew that we were close to where the eye had crossed and sure enough uh, this this little stretch of uh, vacation homes, beach homes is 20 miles west of where the eye of Laura crossed the Louisiana coastline. And so I walked down there through the water, you know, through dead fish and dead rats and, you know, clumps of debris. And I, I found this woman on her balcony and she was in a sort of flowered pink swimsuit with a a pink cap and she was fiddling with her generator and that was Roberta Holmes.
3: I'm happy I made it and there's nothing worse than being in a shelter. And with the COVID going on, I have pre-existing conditions. And I was more afraid of the virus than I was the storm.
0: And so, as you can hear, she chose to ride this out to stay in this beach house, which she had built herself, partly because she didn't want to have to expose herself in crowded shelters, and also because... Her first beach house was destroyed by Hurricane Rita in 2005. Her second home was destroyed by Hurricane Ike uh, in 2008. But it's quite a it's quite a remarkable story that she decided to. I mean, because when she decided to stay, she didn't know that the hurricane was going to go east of her. She could have she could have had 150 mile per hour winds there.
4: And predominantly the
3: wind came out of the north, so it drove the water back into the Gulf. But this storm was the first time I've ever felt the house move, but it wasn't bad.
0: But such was her conviction that she just wasn't not, she was not gonna go to one of those shelters and expose herself to COVID. So there's also a
2: financial aspect to all of this. A lot of people just can't afford to evacuate because it's expensive. That's right. Yeah, so it it almost feels like this hurricane, despite the fact that it's been hurricane season for months, and we've had a pandemic now for at least six months, that this storm has kind of caught us on our heels with no real guidance for people like Roberta to make decisions that might be safer than staying in your home on the coast As a cat for hurricane approaches that could kill you. And hurricane season is nowhere near over. Has anyone offered up any advice about what to do the next time a storm might hit the coast?
0: You mean if coronavirus is still raging? Well, yeah,
2: it's raging now. and, And there's no evidence that it's going to be gone before the end of hurricane
0: season. I mean, I think they're making it up as they go along. It sounded like they, they changed the rules because they just w- try to keep people apart. You know, I was in a Hilton hotel in Beaumont, and there was a, a bunch of reporters there and a bunch of uh, storm evacuees, and people just forgot to wear their masks. You know, it was the same thing. It was that kind of, you know, that triage of just, you know, I can we, we can only handle one disaster at a time. We only have so much bandwidth, right? We only have so much bandwidth, yeah, for, for natural disasters. And the first one is very much the coronavirus.
2: Yes, yes, it is. Thank you so much. That's John Burnett with NPR.
0: You're welcome, Bonnie.
2: So, a family that fled the hurricane came to San Antonio. I'm They're running out of money and they need gas. They're in line to get hotel vouchers so they have somewhere to sleep. And as our very own Texas public radio reporter,
4: Joey Palacios tells us, they aren't the only ones. So ultimately at the city's evacuation site, they registered about 4,000 people who had come from areas between uh, Houston and Louisiana border, and even folks that had come in from Louisiana. Now that's just the city's count. These are people that actually went to the city's evacuation site, and, and needed help, like hotels or directions or information. That doesn't include the people that just came to San Antonio. We we don't have an exact number on that. But some of the things that we saw over the course of the week was a downtown that was more lively than it's been in months. You know, San Antonio is a tourist destination during normal times, but we haven't seen those tourists in in um, throughout the course of the pandemic. But from, from what people have said, downtown was was lively again with with evacuees that were here needing hotels, that needed places to stay. So that's a
2: little bit concerning that the evacuees were out and about, although, you know, probably great for downtown businesses. But Louisiana is a hotspot for this pandemic, and it really has been since the beginning. So, how did COVID 19
4: affect the response? So, the city um, did not set up a congregate shelter. You know, in in hurricanes past, we have seen um, uh, middle schools, in the example of Hurricane Harvey, for instance, and an old middle school in the south side of town was uh, set up as a shelter in 2017 for people that were evacuating Corpus Christi. In those areas, the city couldn't do that this time. They actually they, they couldn't set up these 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 large congregate uh, settings. So they were putting people in hotels. Um, one thing that the county judge, uh, Bear County Judge Nelson Wolf, uh, said is that for the first time, the field hospital set up at Fre- Freeman Coliseum was
5: used. The, the ones that are in there are not necessarily coming from a hospital. They're not. They weren't a hospital patient. But they were patients in nursing homes, assisted living, that require additional assistance, and uh, it's being handled very well. But there, there, there are no COVID patients there. If they did have some, they've got a way to uh, segment, se- segment them.
2: Okay, so. 4,000 at least in shelters in San Antonio, and an unknown number out staying with maybe with family in the city. And as I mentioned, COVID has been in Louisiana, it's been a hot spot for months. Is the city concerned that we might see a surge in a week or
4: two? The city hasn't said that. Um, There hasn't been too much public conversation on the impacts of having more people in San Antonio. Um, But, you know, as we've seen with other instances of large gatherings of people, that there were spikes. Um, But we won't be able to see that for a couple of weeks from now. So we do know
2: that evacuating is not cheap, right? You've got to fill your car with gas. You've got to get your stuff. You've got to have a place to stay. Food, food. Now, some of these folks got a free bus and they got hotel vouchers, but but some people, I'm guessing, drove here on their own. We ran with what we had and we done used it to have a hotel for a couple of days and it's running out now. And we don't know how we're going to get home. We need gas and everything. So we're just trying to
3: faith of the Lord, faith in the Lord.
4: Uh, And that is the Garrett family. Uh, I spoke with uh, Miss Angela Garrett. Uh, She is a resident of Orange, Texas. She came to San Antonio uh, with seven vehicles and 25 family members. And uh, they had enough money for the first night, but they ran out. She was able to get a hotel with the city and they stayed at the Grand Hyatt.
2: And it's been a rough one. And we don't know what we're going to have. Nothing when we get back, but we just hoping and praying we do and trying to survive it out.
4: When I posted a video of Miss Garrett um, talking about uh, her hardship, there were people that started asking me for her cash app. And uh, when I talked to her uh, the next day, she said that she received donations of up to about $500. And that's the story of Miss Garrett, who is just one of the thousands of evacuees who came to San Antonio and are still here right now. Um, The official numbers from the city say that 4,600 people came from the southeast uh, Texas coast and they were put up in about 1,800 hotel rooms here. People on this side of the Texas-Louisiana border in Texas
2: woke up Thursday morning relieved have escaped the worst of Hurricane Laura. The Cat 4 storm had threatened the Texas-Louisiana coast all week, but spared greater Houston with a last minute turn east. Houston Public Media's Elizabeth Troval has more on how towns in Southeast and East Texas are recovering after the storm.
3: Chris Johnson strolls through his yard. He's calm in the middle of the storm. It's pitch black outside, raining, and the wind's howling. Wow. Wow. Chris braved the storm from his home in Port Neches by the Texas-Louisiana border.
2: This will freak you out, you guys, no doubt. How is that tree staying up.
3: Here, he's capturing the scene on Facebook Live as the wind rips down tree branches in his backyard. That one don't follow my, my house. In the morning, Chris surveyed the damage. Well, we just had a lot
2: of trees, tree damage. I had a few little pretty big gazebos that blew down. And uh, I've had a, I had a chicken coop that blew away.
3: Chris says they dodged a bullet. He also owns some beachfront properties he thought could have flooded.
2: But we feel blessed. No doubt. I, I feel you know, I hate to wish that on anybody. You know, what, what everybody's been through in this whole area with Harvey and, you know, Rita was a many years ago. And then the COVID, and it, we just, we've had a lot of flooding and a lot of, had a lot of things happen.
3: He says people in this region are tough and weathered many storms, but it was nice to catch a break. It's hard sometimes to feel lucky in the coronavirus era. Ten miles south in neighboring Port Arthur, Jesus Herrera stands in his driveway.
4: Yeah, wow, I was okay. expecting like a flood, you know, the the seawall to break
3: down. He's been helping know, neighbors in, clean up tree branches from their yard.
4: As you could tell, you know, a bunch of uh, tree debris got knocked down, but uh, thank God not no big old limbs fell around our neighbors' houses or on our houses. You know, so other than that, uh, well, yeah. let's let's start cleaning up.
3: <laughs> he says the biggest damage he saw was in his neighbor's yard, where a utility pole fell into a tree. The tree blocked the pole from crashing into the neighbor's house. That thing came down. You ever, you ever seen a number two pencil snap, you know, like like in school or something? OK, well, that's how it sounded. Jesus lost power during the storm, along with thousands of others in the area. In southeast Texas, more than 100,000 were still without power Thursday afternoon. At an HEB in Port Arthur, Andrew Tull of Texas Search and Rescue says he's relieved that they haven't had to search for missing people in the wake of the storm.
1: We see some very minor
4: structural damage, a few trees here and there, a a steeple fell off of a church.
3: um, But by and large, we are quite pleasantly surprised at the lack of damage. But not all Texans were so lucky. Further northeast, in the small town of Orange, roofs were destroyed, store signs toppled, and wires were blown out of traffic lights. At the local Home Depot, half a dozen people wait outside to get in and find supplies they need to make repairs. The store is limiting the number of shoppers due to COVID-19. Inside, the store is half-lit from power outages, and most shop in their masks. So we were expecting the worst, you know, Because we've rode out Ike, we had rode out Ike, we've rode out Harvey. Tammy Major was walking the aisles inside. She weathered the storm from home to take care of their family dogs and horses.
6: As far as the damages, we just had
3: uh, fencing damages and then limbs down in the yard. About a mile down the road, Francisco Suniga boards up a busted window outside his Salvation Army store a one-story building on a quiet street in Orange.
4: Evidently, the, the storm took the window out, and I think that maybe a couple of people may have gone inside and kind of scrambled some of the stuff inside.
3: He says he saw footprints by the broken window and thinks someone may have stolen some donated items.
4: Um, the next step is just basically waiting for everybody to be able to get back to, you know, uh, some kind of normalcy again, you know, businesses to be able to reopen, get the glass companies to come out, fix it up, get it all taken care of, and keep on
3: going. Many, like Francis are trying to get back to normal, as normal as you can be during a pandemic. But there's a good chance the bad weather will be back. Meteorologists predict a worse-than-normal hurricane season this year. The Gulf Coast won't be in the clear until end November.
2: Uh, The end of November. Hurricane season is long, and this one has been predicted to be an active one. So more tropical storms... And hurricanes are likely to arrive, and more people will likely be cleared out of their homes. And no matter what you do, an evacuation presents risk during a pandemic. All you can do is minimize that risk, right? Both to evacuees and the people in communities that are sheltering them. But how do you do it?
5: Well, you know, look, whenever you're doing an evacuation as an individual, There is an enormous amount of things that have to go into deciding to do it.
2: That's Jeffrey Shaman. He's a professor at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health and the Earth Institute and director of the university's climate and health program.
5: The problem with an evacuation is there's so many other things going on that it becomes very, very challenging for people to prioritize social distancing, mask usage, cleaning, ventilation and all the other things that you might want to use to combat the virus. That's that's where the issue comes in.
2: Shaman is a senior author on a study by a group of scientists from Columbia University and the Union of Concerned Scientists.
5: There are economic costs. There are the logistics of getting out. There is the boarding and the protecting of your property. If you're leaving that behind, there is the taking of possessions, taking of your family members. There's the taking of pets with you. It is an enormously stressful situation, and it's very, very complicated. And it is no surprise that thinking about what this means for the pandemic uh, is not going to be on the fore of people's minds at that point, because they have an immediate threat that is very dangerous. Drowning is immediate, okay? The virus is not seen. You don't even know if it's there, if you're feeling fine. So it's not the same kind of immediate threat there.
2: Right. So those evacuating to get out of Laura's way may not have been able to take the pandemic into account when choosing where to go. But since we have months remaining in hurricane season, Shaman says now is the time to ask yourself a few questions.
5: If you are somebody who lives in an area that's prone to the landfall of a hurricane, you want to be mindful of how much COVID is in your own community and what is your plan? Where are you going to go? The Columbia UCS study modeled
2: a hypothetical Category 3 hurricane making landfall in the Miami area, and it plotted evacuations based on historic evacuation patterns. It found that if people chose to go where history says most of them would typically go, virus transmission rates increased by 20% in the destination counties, and worst-case scenario, there were more than 60,000 new coronavirus cases in the destination and the counties of origin combined. But if people evacuated to communities with low COVID-19 transmission rates, best case scenario, there could be as few as 9,100 additional cases resulting from the evacuation. So if you see your community is in the projected path of a hurricane and you've been asked to get out of town, consider this
5: what is the community infection rate of the destination location so if you have a county how much infections are there and is it growing or not
2: shaman says if you have the bandwidth to think about all these things and have the resources try to go to a community with lower transmission rates then there's shelter what kind of shelter is being offered in the destination communities san antonio as joey palacios noted is offering hotel vouchers.
5: A hotel, to me, where people have their own rooms, and yes, they can move through the lobby, and yes, they have to interact with people coming in and out, but they can spend a lot of time isolated in their rooms individually as families, right, is safer than a convention center where everybody's on cots and it's one big mixing environment.
2: But, Shaman says, convention centers and other large venues can be made into places that won't be hotspots for viral transmission, and hotels can become hotspots, depending on how things are handled.
5: You know, if you were to have a hotel and they're really complacent, and there are people hanging out in the hotel lobby, and they're interacting, and they're not wearing masks, and they're not socially distanced, whereas in the convention center, they space all the cots 10 feet apart and they require everyone to wear masks all the time, and they keep the ventilation going at a high rate, they might do better. And that's where the details really do matter.
2: Okay, so what about communities that agree to shelter evacuees? While evacuees can choose communities with lower infection rates, sheltering cities have no control over whether evacuees come from communities with high infection rates, So can a city like, for example, San Antonio, that sheltered evacuees expect another surge in COVID cases
5: in a week or two? Shaman says not necessarily. If you can manage that number of evacuees and help them be sheltered and provide them resources and personal protective equipment so that they can keep themselves safe, they're going to use them while they're there, you know, provide them the information as well, ask them to use this. You know, Texas has the the statewide laws or or rulings or policies in place, I should say right now. Um, So they should be following those. And that's that's what you'd want to see. The more you do that, the more you're going to minimize any chance of this bumper resurgence or increase of cases that San Antonio wants to avoid.
2: Those protocols can be tough to follow while hunkering down in large groups. That's where another solution can come into play, one we saw firsthand last week here in Texas.
7: I don't care if you're in different kitchen. You're not be over there when we're
2: cooking. Sherilyn Case is cooking for her parents and two friends in San Antonio, Texas.
7: Nine years ago today, Hurricane Irene hit Newport News. Mom was mad at me for not leaving, but it was only a cat, one cat, two. So, yeah, but y'all didn't know for sure until hit. Yeah, we didn't know until the last minute, but Irene was a lot
2: different than Laura. She's, of course, Irene talking about hurricanes because uh, hurricane Laura is why she's here after she's months of not seeing her parents to protect them from the pandemic.
7: Because Irene was losing strength as she's getting closer. Laura was gaining strength as she's getting closer.
2: <laughs> Sherilyn lives in Moss Bluff, Louisiana, on the northern edge of Lake Charles, a place now devastated by Hurricane Laura. She didn't plan to come to San Antonio. Laura's track was uncertain. It was churning through the Gulf with its fraternal tropical twin, Marco, and no one really knew what was going to happen. What happened was Marco fell apart and Laura suddenly became a monster.
7: Like I blinked and it's suddenly this really big catastrophic thing heading my way.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So everyone who lives in a hurricane prone area has some calculus they do when trying to decide whether to evacuate. And at 1010 a.m. on August 26th, the National Hurricane Center made that calculus a little bit easier for Sherilyn. It tweeted out the kind of warning that makes your blood run cold. It predicted, quote, unsurvivable storm surge with large and destructive waves causing catastrophic damage. Southwest Louisiana was right in the bullseye.
7: At first, I was just gonna stick it out because initially they also said, oh, it's only gonna be a cat too. I was like, well, that's no problem. I've been through cat two hurricanes before, and I know I can do that. But then it seemed like overnight they suddenly said cat four, and it was like, I think it's time to go.
2: Time to go, but where? The only place Sherilyn had to go was her parents' house in San Antonio, and suddenly two natural disasters, a major hurricane and a pandemic, collided
7: in her life. And my mom. Just got over back surgery less than 10 weeks ago, and she's got bronchial asthma. She's really high risk for COVID. And my dad's really protective. They've been really good at social distancing and everything else, ordering everything to be delivered. And all of a sudden, I'm showing up.
2: Not just her, but her roommate and his mom, too.
7: Suddenly, three people that they're not used to being around. They don't know our history. We're hoping we're not carrying it because Louisiana is a hot spot and we're just showing up at their house.
2: Which complicated the calculus for her parents who are in their 70s.
7: My mom, you know, well, it's me. So my mom said, Of course, you can come right away. Whatever you need, just come here. She said if it wasn't for COVID, she would have said yes in a heartbeat for all of us. My dad, when I had to talk to him on the phone, when I initially had to ask, he said, let me call you back, hung up, because he was in shock, and then five minutes later called me back (laughs) and said, yes, of course, you can all come. So... As
2: you can guess, this all added to the general stress associated with trying to get out of the way of a potentially killer storm.
7: Yeah, really high pressure because I don't want anything to happen to them. So how
2: do you shelter with an older at-risk couple during a pandemic?
7: We're sleeping on a different end of the house. We're wearing masks when we're around each other and just making sure that we're not in the same room together. If we are, we're wearing masks. Yeah, mashed potatoes, broccoli cheese, chicken, mm-hmm. crescent rolls. We're doing what we can to stay apart. We're eating dinner, we're in different corners of the room, trying to not get too close.
2: Sherilyn's roommate and his mom have headed back to Moss Bluff they wanted to leave as soon as it was safe to do so to reduce the risk to Sherilyn's parents. She stayed on in San Antonio because the situation in southwest Louisiana is not great.
7: Campfire Road is completely impassable and he said most of the other parts of the neighborhood are too. There's a lot of trees up in that area. Although my friend Gwen just called She said that, or what she heard, is if you're in Moss Bluff and you had trees, you don't have trees anymore. Power is out. We do know that. And we also know that the water plants are out, so there's no water and no power there right now. So...
2: So we know hurricane season has a few months left and tropical activity typically peaks in September. So Sherilyn says if you live in an area that is at risk for a hurricane during a pandemic, prepare now.
7: Make sure that everything you have is ready to go because it is absolutely insane those last few hours before you go and if you're trying to pack up and grab things and just throw them in your truck, you're inevitably going to forget something. Have a list somewhere and just try to remember to follow it and try to remember to breathe especially and focus. Oh, and one more thing. Pray for Southwest Louisiana because we still have a really long road ahead of us.
2: Louisiana is, of course, no stranger to hurricane recovery. Laura's aftermath is sadly familiar.
6: I had been in New Orleans for four years, and in the month of August, I had been assigned to be the attending physician on the HIV ward in Charity Hospital.
2: It was another August, this one in 2005. Dr. Ruth Berggren found herself on a collision course with another natural disaster called Katrina.
6: And uh, towards the end of that month, you know, the hurricane struck and uh, because it was just The case that I was the attending physician assigned to the HIV ward, I was the person that was required to show up and be there.
2: Just like the National Hurricane Center sent out that chilling tweet about the storm surge from Laura being potentially unsurvivable along the coast, the National Weather Service warned about Katrina when it was nearing the Louisiana coast. In a now-famous bulletin, it said, among other things, most of the area will be uninhabitable for weeks, perhaps longer. At least one half of well-constructed homes will have roof and wall failure. High-rise office and apartment buildings will sway dangerously, a few to the point of total collapse. All windows will blow out, and blown debris will create an additional destruction. Persons, pets, and livestock exposed to the winds will face certain death if struck. Yeah, and that's where Dr. Bergen would find herself as an attending among a small group of doctors left to care for 250 patients for six days. They were trapped there by floodwaters caring for their patients without running water or electricity. Berggren is an infectious diseases expert, she's an expert on this pandemic, and in my mind, after Katrina, she's an expert in hurricanes. She's now in San Antonio, where she directs UT Health San Antonio's Center for Medical Humanities and Ethics. So I asked her what concerned her most about Laura and for the rest of this hurricane season during a pandemic.
6: Whether it's a hurricane, in hot weather, um, or whether there's a pandemic, and when you add the two together, that's what I really get concerned about: is um, are people paying attention to the most medically vulnerable, prioritizing their health and safety first, making sure they get put in places where they can be properly cooled. Fed and segregated from others who might be infectious.
2: I told Dr. Berger about Roberta on the Louisiana coast. Remember her? She had the pre existing conditions and autism and was more afraid of a shelter than a category four hurricane with a potentially unsurvivable surge.
6: Right. Well, I think, you know, I think that's something that would be likely to get replicated over and over again that people are going to be more reluctant to evacuate. Um, when there's a pandemic because they're gonna, they'd rather take their chances um, in their own home than have to flee and then be um, up against a set of circumstances that they also have no control over.
2: Berggren says communities need to make specific plans To help the medically vulnerable in the path of a storm get out of their homes and to safe places where they can stay cool, fed, hydrated, and isolated from potentially infectious people. And if they haven't done it already, they need to do it now, before the next tropical system makes landfall. In San Antonio, where there are still thousands of Laura evacuees, in hotels and at the Freeman Coliseum, Dr. Berggren says everyone needs to be at their pandemic best about masking and distancing and handwashing because the city's current projections of a falling infection curve over the next few weeks could easily change
6: they don't really take into account a bunch of hurricanes that are bringing um, people from outside our community into our community. So we need to be extra cautious. And anybody who's on the front lines of meeting, greeting and helping those evacuees needs to be extra cautious.
2: So this is a lot, right? A pandemic plus a hurricane with evacuations, along with the potential for more tropical weather over the next few months. Berggren agrees. It's A lot. It's times like these where she leans on the lessons she learned during Katrina.
6: Um, We said this to each other inside Charity Hospital, we said we cannot control what is happening to us, but we can control how we treat one another. And that makes an enormous difference. Um, And people can just need to put aside their differences and just do the work that needs to be done. Do the work, she says and be kind.
2: Be kind. So simple, right? But it seems to have become a difficult thing during this pandemic for some of us. It makes sense, right? I mean, we've been mostly holed up in our homes since March. Our kids haven't been able to safely go to school. We haven't been able to safely go to work millions of us no longer have any work to go to. At to that what? There's no consistent messaging from our leaders about what we can do to, to make any of this better. And there's a virus out there that doesn't care about our leaders' messaging. And now there are hurricanes that also aren't paying any attention to what politicians say. With. All of this pressing down on us like stones. Sometimes it's extremely difficult to be kind. If you see someone without a mask on and you know their choice is likely to keep you trapped inside your home even longer, kindness might fall way down on your list of things to think about. And if you think masks are part of a grand conspiracy to control the population, Perhaps kindness is not on your list of things to do at all. And when thousands of strangers come to your town from a potential COVID hotspot, desperate for shelter, but possibly undoing all the work you and your fellow citizens have done for months to flatten the curve, kindness it may seem out of reach. But this is the thing. I've talked to the infectious diseases doc, Dr. Berggren, who was trapped in treating patients during Hurricane Katrina. I've talked to her several times during this pandemic. You know, she also volunteered to treat patients during Hurricane Harvey, which hit the Houston area. She knows from the multiple stressors that can weigh you down during a crisis. And what did she say just minutes ago? We cannot control what is happening to us, but we can control how we treat one another. As this pandemic pushes on with no end in sight, and as hurricane season delivers the second hit in an existential one-two punch, we have to acknowledge these things. These things are beyond our control. We can be mad about it, but that will only add to our misery. But if we let all of that go, if we focus on the things we can control, one of which is how we treat one another, then we're getting somewhere. Then we can do the work that needs to be done. Special thanks this week to Travis Lux with WWNO New Orleans, NPR's John Burnett, Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios, Elizabeth Troval, and Matt Harab with Houston Public Media, and Texas statewide newsroom reporter Sarah Willa Ernst for their reporting. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and me. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. And our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.